7 o'clock on the button, and we got a big one for you tonight. It's Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, 7.45, got uh, an amazing guest coming on. He's been on Ira on Sports before. It's Andrew Catalan. Tell us about him. Well, Andrew uh, works for CBS. He did. He does the play-by-play -play, mm -hmm. uh, for the football games, a uh, lot many Dolphin games. So we're going to ask him a little about the new instant replay in the NFL. Yep. And he's uh, had meetings with Ryan Fitzpatrick and talked to him. So we're going to ask him a little about Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's also doing the golf for CBS, which is the yes. Masters in two weeks. And he's doing the feature groups. If you go on DirecTV or your app or and follow it on Masters Live, he'll be doing that. So he has some insight in at the Masters, and we'll see what his, his picks are for the Masters. And he also did the first round of the NCAA basketball tournaments for CBS on television uh, and saw Auburn play when they were playing in the Salt Lake region. Yeah. So he really covers like everything we want to talk <laughs> about now. This is really a go-to guy who probably knows more about those three sports than anyone else. Yeah, he is um, literally the best possible person to talk about everything going on in the world of sports. Baseball kicked off as well. Uh, we'll talk about that. You took in a game in a new stadium you've never been to before, so we'll get to that in a minute. I, I got to retract uh, what I said last week about this being one of those boring tournaments so far. Because the round of 16, the Sweet 16 on, was as exciting as I've ever seen in college basketball. Well, I think when you have the teams, remember, there are no, quote, Cinderella's left. These mm -hmm. are all big-time teams with big-time players. And uh, besides that Texas Tech-Michigan game, where I think Michigan did not show up. Texas uh, Tech played great D, though. Texas played great D, but Michigan just keep, kept shooting threes. Mm. But I, and generally, every game was relatively extremely close. We had overtime games, buzzer beaters, all the things that you expect in a tournament, and high-quality basketball. Absolutely, we did. Um, Ira? This I say it often, but this is definitely the busiest week you've ever had. I'm um, doing this show. Tell us about it. It's a laundry list of events you took in. Saturday spring training, uh, Sunday spring training, Monday tennis uh, with Saul Federer. Tuesday I went and saw the Bosch retirement. We're going to talk about that at mm -hmm. the Miami Heat. Wednesday I saw Federer and Isner both play at the at the Miami Open. Uh, Thursday off. Friday, <laughs> Friday, travel day. Friday, tra yes, travel day. Friday, I saw the Duke, uh, Duke play Virginia Tech and LSU Michigan State games at the Capital One Center in DC. And then Saturday, I saw the Nats game. Nats, Nats, first time I've ever been in Nationals Ballpark. Beautiful mm -hmm. stadium. Very nice to be there. And then Sunday, saw, of course, one of the worst games, <laughs> Duke Michigan State. <laughs> um, it, it, totally exhausting this week. Before we um, get into the tournaments itself, um, wasn't there something interesting that happened with you trying to get Federer tickets and you got a much better deal than you would have just because you, you kind of knew how to play the system? Well, no, I was lucky, though. Federer was supposed to play Tuesday night during the Bosch match, and uh, the mat it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, so they moved it to Wednesday, And but it was like announced. I got back from the Miami Heat game, and I'm like, they moved the Federer match to Wednesday, but people didn't really know that it was moved to Wednesday, mm -hmm. and so the tickets were really cheap, so I got to sit in the 100 levels uh, for for next to nothing down there. So it was great to see that. And then I got to see Federer play on Wednesday. And Djokovic, if he had won, would have played Isner. But you got to see those two matches. Um, I usually see much more than two days of tennis, but the basketball was too busy and it just didn't work out. So I, at least I got to see two days at the new venue at Hard Rock Stadium. Absolutely did. Speaking about venues, never been to the Capital One Center. It's always some it's always some place that I've wanted to see. I love you know everything in that area. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and also about the game. Well, first of all, the Capital One Center is in Washington D.C. and it's off. It's downtown. It's off the mall, and there's restaurants around. Like you know how much I like. I like the atmosphere. People yeah. walking from restaurants to the park. I just don't like when it's in the middle of nowhere. Like Giant Stadium is the. <laughs> I hate that. It sits there in New Jersey. Of parking lot. Forty. There's parking lots and there's uh, and then and then there's expressways around it. So it's right there. So there's a lot of people walking from the bars and the college basketball atmosphere is everyone's dressed up. Mm -hmm. You have the LSU fans, the Michigan State fans, the Duke fans, the Virginia Tech fans. Um, the stadium, 
Who's the, the most represented? Virginia Tech? Virginia Tech. Yeah. And, and they do not like Duke fans. And nobody likes Duke fans except Duke <laughs> fans. And it's, I like this. The stadium has three decks. It's very similar to the other, it's like the cookie cutter stadiums that have the lower level suites and then a mid-level suite. So there's like, there's like a lower section, then there's suites, and then there's like a club section, and then there's another set of suites, and then mm. there's the upper deck. When the, these stadiums were first built, they usually put the suites at the tippy top. Of course, nobody wants the suites at tippy top, so now suites are lower. But that does push the higher level seats the upper level seats higher because of the top of the stadium and no and that's interesting i do like that better i like the the club level and the suite level together just for me i, I like that view the best and i'm sure you you probably feel the same way well i think it makes it i had to but for this this ticket price was the, it was the highest it was the highest ticket price for a regional ever really because of virginia tech duke michigan state and lsu just a big draw zion everything was there so i just i actually had to go i like I went to the upper deck on the first row dead center. So I thought that was a better ticket rather than say, I hate sitting in corners. I don't like sitting behind the basket. And that mm -hmm. was like from the ticket price. That was probably the best place to sit. Um, but it was great. It was the atmosphere. The stadium, though, the food selections aren't good. Um, and the concourses aren't that exciting. It's not one of the better venues I've been mm -hmm. to. It's Oh, they had a facelift and they fixed it up. But it was it's still, I wasn't that impressed. I wasn't in the club sections. I was in the lower level mm -hmm. for the la for Sunday's game, but the upper level for the for Thursday's game. But I wasn't that impressed. It was, it's sort of stale. Yeah. Do, do you think that being a split use stadium or arena kind of takes away from that a little bit? Str uh, totally. Yeah, I think when too. you think of the best arenas, the the uh, where Backers Life or Indiana Pacers play, where Utah plays, the Miami Heat arena, where the the where the round when we when you put the hockey seats in, the stadium is too big, mm -hmm. and when it's only basketball only, you have that curve, and it just it it's just perfect. That's like going and watching tennis at Hard Rock. It's a football stadium. They don't have the perfect. <laughs> you're facing the wrong way. Or when they used to have baseball stadiums that were baseball and football, and you'd be sitting there watching a, a baseball game and you're looking at the wrong direction or a football game yeah, and you're looking you have to turn your body just to look at the 50 yard line so it's no I think it's best to have a basketball arena but it was neat to be there added and it's a great atmosphere because there's so many different schools and there's a lot of good fans in that area too so I'm sure it was good um you know what Ira I didn't love LSU going into the game versus Michigan State, but I really didn't like them after that. Michigan State played them very, very well, and I was worried about teams facing Michigan State after that. Well, we talked about this last week. Will Wade was the coach at LSU. He had a scandal in terms of he was caught on tape uh, offering or suggesting money for a player, so mm -hmm. they suspended him a few games ago. Clearly, LSU was not ready to play against Izzo. And you saw how Izzo coached Tom Izzo from Michigan State, the coach, what he did against Coach K. And this was mincemeat against LSU. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the LSU interim coach is not a tactician. It was just put in the role. And it was just, a, it, to me, it was it was interesting game. The LSU went on a 13-0 run, uh, but uh, in, at the end of the first quarter, or the first half, however, Michigan State sort of was in control the entire game. Uh, Aaron Henry, number 11, mm -hmm. if you watch the game, you see number 11. He was a freshman. He's the one that Tom Izzo yelled at. Um, had a great game, 28 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. They call it the Draymond, Draymond Green game. He like, <laughs> did everything out there. And then this other freshman had 15 points, Gabe Brown. But it was it was they won 80 to 63 by 17, a little closer than 17 points, but it just you didn't you felt like Michigan State had this game. And as a Duke fan, I'm like, Michigan State is really ready to play like this tournament. Like they're prepared. They have they have the mix of the freshmen and the seniors, which Duke doesn't have, mm -hmm. and they seem to be well-coached and peaking at the right time. It, that's exactly what I was kind of alluding to, that I'm thinking, man, this Michigan State team looks pretty good, and you never count Tom Izzo out um, you know, in the tournament. Um, let's talk about Duke and uh, Virginia Tech. Well, first of all, let's talk about the Cam Reddish disaster. I mean, I'm there early <laughs> watching, and Cam Reddish goes out there, and he's jumping around, and he's one of the key players 
players of Duke's team and you're watching the warmups and he's playing. Then you you go to the start. Then I saw him come out. They what they do is they come out with 30 minutes to go before they get with 30 minutes. They come right out after after LSU's uh, Michigan State's have done. Uh, Duke's players, the uh, Duke players, Virginia Tech players run out. Cam Reddish is in the warmups, doing the warmup drills, shooting and everything. Then they go back to the locker room. They're there for a few minutes and then they come back out again. When he came back out again, he he wasn't there. I noticed he wasn't there. And then he's walking out gingerly. So like something happened between the fact that they were on the court and they went back to the locker room. Now someone said there was a mosh pit back there. I don't know what, <laughs> but I've never heard seen a player get hurt like in not even in a warmup, but not even like he ran off the court. Like how do you get hurt in the locker room coming back from the locker room back to the court? And he was, and then he didn't play the entire game. And then Coach K admitted he's like we, we he said he had he's had knee problems all year, but hasn't missed a game. And he thought they were ready, so it was very weird. I think when they had started Alex O'Connell instead of uh, Cam Reddish, it just threw Duke off uh, a lot. And then the other thing is Jack White. It was funny was one of their other players, bench players that comes in the game. He he rode an exercise bike the entire game. Mm-hmm. I think he must have had like thirty miles on the exercise bike. Oh, wow. And then he really came in and played like a few minutes in the game, but was a sort of a non-factor that game and the other game. I and mean, one of the big problems that Duke has is Duke did not really develop with all the recruits they have is that someone could come in and you could see these other teams have them but someone who can just drain like three or four threes mm-hmm. uh ryan klein for purdue does that you just needed they needed another shooter and they didn't have that and that hurt and o'connell and white were not that they were these great shooters that they were supposedly great three-point shooters just did not develop during this year as three-point shooters so let's talk about the uh, the, the game itself because um you know duke still they did what they had to do to get it done well, 13 minutes. R.J. Barrett didn't score any points until 13 minutes in the game. Duke trailed again. I mean, Duke, this is what it's everyone's been a weird. They're down, yeah. they're down. I mean, it's like, why cannot Duke just come out there? I mean, and, do, and just dominate a game and just blow these teams out. So it's because it let Virginia Tech, which was undersized, think, well, we could play with them. Like when you're up 15-9 on a team like Duke, you're like, well, now I think we already they already beat them without Zion. So they're thinking, well, now we can play with them. And Zion scored the seven of the first nine points. He looked great. He had this. He's amazing in the offensive rebounds. Where he just offensive rebounds and dunks the ball. It was it was tremendous. And Trey Jones, who was one for eight against UCF on threes, this was his game. I mean, he had five threes. He was draining. He had two three pointers, and he looked really he looked fantastic. Um, but at one point at the end of the game, Duke was um, Virginia Tech was leading at the half, 38-34. But you felt like Duke was still yeah, had this game. I don't think anyone was worried. Uh, I was worried a little bit, but not that worried. But it was at the end. Duke was up 64-61, and Justin Robinson. This play was amazing. Crazy. He he. He beat Zion. So Zion is totally beat. And Zion's recovery, it, this was video game. This was like when you put the burner power on a video game where you're like <laughs> allowed to have. Zion jumped. I, I could not believe he blocked. He was a whole, he was, and Justin Robinson's fast. He's the leading assist person. It wasn't like he blew by Zion and Zion blocked that ball. They were able to go down the other end and get a basket and they hit a shot, go up 66-61. Duke's up 75-61 with a minute 21 to go. They made it 75-71. Zion turns it over. Then the, and, and, and so it's getting, cutting it close. But then Trey Jones, this is what Duke's problem has been the whole time. Trey Jones has a one-on-one. They're, they're, they're up two. He has a one-on-one, so he can make it a four-point lead. He misses his free throw on a one-on-one. Yeah. They come down there. They miss a three-point shot, get the offensive rebound. Virginia Tech does. They miss another three-point shot. And then remember the UCF game when they had that tip-in? Yeah, And, 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 and Andre, Andre Dawkins had this tip-in. So Armand Hill had, a, had an easy tip-in, maybe an inch away from the basket. Mm-hmm. And where I was sitting, I thought it went in. Like, I swear I thought yeah, it went in. Angle. And then it just didn't go in, and Duke was able to win uh, by two. Now, that would have taken it into overtime. But Duke, um, just they were 6 for 20 from threes um they they were you know they just it was a weird game they shot 56 percent from the field and they didn't play really gold wire or white almost the whole game and they were using delari and bolden like 20 minutes each but zion scored at 23 points rj barrett seven for 17 
0 for 7 from three-point line, 18 points, five turnovers. He had seven turnovers in the Michigan State game. And Trey Jones, that was the star of the game, 8 for 14, 22 points, eight assists. So it was like one of those games where, again, this is now almost you know three games in a row, they, they're just not playing that yeah. well. You know, a lot of people thought that Hill didn't realize what kind of time he had and kind of put a half shot and it just didn't, you know, that's why it didn't go in. It should have been such a high percentage shot, but he didn't take his time. They didn't even replay that in the arena. I had to go back and watch it. I can't believe he missed that shot. I can't believe Audrey Dawkins missed it against UCF. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what Duke, Duke is like great at the end of the game, putting something on the basket. I mean, they really didn't do anything. They didn't try to block the shot. They didn't do anything. These guys just missed shots. Yeah. And Duke got very, very, but you're thinking, okay, Duke's got lucky two games. Now let's come on. You've already got, they didn't, yeah. they did not take advantage we'll of that. We'll talk about that in one second. This is Ira on Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. It's 713. I'm Mike Balsamo. All right, Ira. You got your Duke gear on, but uh, Duke is not going to be advancing to the Final Four, and this was this was a tough tough loss. No, it was a, it was a bad loss. Duke was twelve and two against Michigan State overall, and four and one in the NCAA's. So up to this game, Coach K had Izzo, and this is the year. I mean, this is the year that uh, Duke really was. I mean, if you look at the talent level on both teams, uh, Michigan State had that. We said there's good freshmen. Uh, freshmen Cassius Winston was is a tremendous point guard and a very good player, but. Not elite, not like the, these are guys that I mean. In the future, I think RJ Barrett's gonna have a great pro career. I think Cambridge might. Zion's gonna be a, an elite player. People are gonna look like how in the world did Duke not only not? <laughs> and you look at the teams in the Final Four. There's so much more talent than they have. These three supposedly three lottery picks, and this is one of Coach K's worst coaching jobs ever. Um, you can't criticize him when he's won five national titles. But the one thing is that, and all his national titles that he won, he's had point guards that can really shoot the ball well. Always. Bobby Hurley, um, Jay Williams won a national title when the year that they had uh, Bobby Hurley won two but the year they had John Shire and Nolan Smith and that people don't even remember them but they won the national title with those two guards mm-hmm. they were great three Nolan Smith was draining threes all over the place and then Trey Jones's brother was actually a good point guard but that game uh, the last time the one they won with uh, Justice Winslow but Grayson Allen if people remember it was super was a superstar that game that's when Grayson Allen could really shoot really well and play great that game and mm-hmm. won that game won the game against Wisconsin but this is just a mess and this is a bad season and nothing but a championship was going to be like this was either championship or bust for Duke and I felt like problems that if you watch the Gonzaga game that we saw earlier in the year, the fact that they at the end of the game, R.J. Barrett just fires up shots instead of getting to Zion. I'm sitting for this game. I had tickets in the third row. So I'm right there. And mm-hmm. there were there were times, I can't tell you, I, half the possessions that Duke came down, Zion didn't even touch the ball. They didn't even look for it. There were plays where Zion's standing there with a man on him. They did not even throw him the ball. I cannot believe people say... Zion in the pros, it's going to be different. It's a man against boys. I think in the pros, coaches are going to say, you're throwing it. Like, they don't, the Heat don't come down when LeBron was on the team or the Cavs. Don't throw it to LeBron. Mm-hmm. Like, you get it to your best player and you have your best player working. And Zion can handle the ball on the outside. He can shoot threes. He can drive and get him in the inside. And then what was so weird on some plays, RJ Barrett, they didn't even run a play. Like, they're standing, like, Zion was standing wide open on the outside. RJ Barrett just looks and just throws a shot up. Like, <laughs> like, like, wait, at least, this put, isn't what we, what we do. at least put Zion underneath the basket because he can out-rebound anybody on Michigan City's team. They didn't even get Zion a chance to go underneath the basket. Mm. Like, there's times like Zion looked a little tired in the game. Yeah, because he's jumping everywhere. He's trying to do everything, playing tough D. So on, so on. Sometimes let, let him get underneath before you take these stupid shots that you're going to fire up and let him get the offensive rebound. Uh, I just, he had seven offensive rebounds against Michigan State. If he, they gave him more chance, he probably could add 12 offensive rebounds. But I just think this was a terrible game. I, I really think Duke should have blown them out and I, the, the whole use of Zion during this whole year was terrible and then even on defense like Michigan State played smart Michigan State played extremely smart basketball they were able to run the pick and rolls take advantage of them and they didn't let Duke they were very careful with the ball Cassius Winston was like the only one they 
that you handle the ball and don't turn it over because Duke can certainly has the athletes like Zion to dunk the ball, amazing dunks. Mm. But Duke re- had, Duke had a very at one point in the game and near the until the end of the game had zero fast break points the entire game. But it was just a it was just a terrible terrible loss. Um, it was exciting. Magic Johnson's in the house, of course, yeah. And uh, I, and if anybody goes on, I have on my Instagram account, Iron Sports. Um, some of my best pictures I've ever taken were at that game. I mean, I have great Zion pictures, mm-hmm. dunking, everything. So if you go on Iron Sports on Instagram, you'll see those uh, posted. But uh, Michigan State, again, this is a, a story of Dukes. They jumped out to a 14-7 lead. Um, Duke came back. Um, and then Zion and Cam and, and, and RJ made threes. They went up. Duke went up 30-21. And I'm like, they're going to win this game. Yep. Like, this is the game Keep that they're going to the win by 20. Like, I felt like at some points in this game, I thought Duke was just good. This is a 20, 25-point game. I thought Michigan State was having trouble scoring at points. And I'm like, they're going to blow them out. But then at the 524 mark, they're up 30 to 21. And this is where the disaster happened. So they're up 30 to 21. How in the world did they go from 30 21 to 34 30? They actually did not score for 524, let Michigan State score 13 straight points. Duke was 0 for 5 with six turnovers. Now, that, not is, not, that is not <laughs> how you're supposed to play basketball. And it was like Duke was like they can't, they, they can't enjoy success. Like they have to be down before they, they play hard. Mm-hmm. Like you have this team. They, the killer instinct that this Duke team had is just totally non-existent. And then so the Michigan State comes out of halftime, goes up 36-30. And, uh, and then and actually then it got close. I mean, there was a point in the game where um, they were Duke went up 52-48. And then at 58-58, Bears misses a three throw, and uh, and 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 uh, Virginia Tech went. I mean, sorry, Michigan State went up 63-59 with four minutes to go. But actually, Duke took the lead. So now they have the lead, 64-63. Baird hit a three. Mm. Then Zion made a layup to go up 66-63. A minute 44 to go. Last <laughs> shot that Zion Williamson ever took as a Duke basketball player with a minute 44 in a it's game. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. I just could you imagine if I said LeBron James didn't take a shot in the final two minutes it would of the game? Happen. It just he'd I, steal the ball out of someone's head. And look at all the other stars of all the other teams. I mean Culver and and Carson Edwards for Purdue. We're watching every single game. Showfield. I'm talking about all the stars of the games. They all took shots. Not him. Uh, 121. Uh, Tillman made a layup, and then this is what then R.J. Barrett misses a jumper. So even they're up 66-65. R.J. Barrett misses a shot. Then that's when Kenny Goins, who is a Fifth-year walk-on. He was at the Final Four team in 2015 when Duke and Michigan State. He hits that three-pointer with Zion. <laughs> it was a crazy three-pointer that he, mm-hmm. he missed his previous threes. Then they come down. R.J. Barrett, not throwing it to Zion, misses a three-pointer. They get the offensive rebound. He gets fouled. Now, remember, they're down one point. He didn't even have to take the three-pointer. Just get a design to score. <laughs> right. So he takes the three-pointer. He then misses the foul shot, and then he's trying to get the second shot, and he makes that one. So, they're, it, I mean, it was just – they were down two, I'm sorry, and that would have been to tie it to go into overtime, and, and they weren't able to make it. It was just a total disaster. They were six for 13 from threes. Um, they had 17 turnovers. Duke had 17 turnovers. Yeah, you never Trey, win like that. Trey Jones had four points. Um, and uh, and Zion had 14 rebounds and he had 20 24 points and three steals and seven blo- I mean three blocks I mean he played great but um, R J Barrett was just I just those missed free throws the turnovers everything just mm-hmm. a bad bad game and and it was and it's Michigan State deserves that Michigan State's uh, they just outplayed Duke and now the season's over yeah let's move on to the West Ira I gotta tell you this I, I really found myself rooting for Gonzaga. Um, and after the Florida State game, I was thinking to myself, man, that's a pretty convincing win. I like Gonzaga going forward. Obviously, I wasn't correct, but tell us about that one. Well, I just thought there was an interesting stat during the game. Gonzaga, since Mark Fuse has been the coach, since they're leading in the half with leading, just leading, I'm sorry, by up by 11 and a half, which I can't believe this many games they have, are 264 and one. 
That's an astronomical. Yeah. And they were up 38-27. And Florida State just didn't score. I mean, they were three for 20 on, thir- on three-pointers, committed 14 turnovers. And this is what Florida State's problem has been all year, which I thought they'd happen earlier in the tournament, where they just didn't shoot well. And they finally re- they finally didn't shoot yeah. well. And Gonzaga, I don't think it's Yeah, you called it eventually. Great. Eventually, <laughs> they, 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 they were three for 20, and they just didn't play well. I mean, I think those games, the West game's weird, because then the Michigan played Texas Tech, and that game was, a, I thought, a disaster. I mean, to watch 6-6 with 11 minutes to go in the first half, Michigan shot uh, 20%. For the game, they were one for 19 from three-pointers, and it was just a blowout. I mean, it was, it was just low scoring, and finally Texas Tech started scoring and even Culver was 0 for 5 on 3 their star player but it was just I thought Michigan's performance was they just and I, I what I was mad about what I talked about last week if you're not making your threes and the score is so low, just try to score two-point shots. They just kept firing up threes. They were like, everyone's cold. Your entire team's cold. Stop shooting threes and just try to score some points. You would think. <laughs> and they have John Bailon as a coach. He's one of the best coaches in basketball. But even he, they just keep shooting threes. Well, going to the next game, it, it was uh, it was interesting to me, and I didn't see it coming. But Texas Tech proved that they're pretty darn good, and they knocked off Gonzaga. Yeah, I mean, that it was it was exciting in the middle of the game where Hachimura, who's the forward for uh, Gonzaga, and Culver, who is just tremendous for Texas Tech, who I think is going to be one of the top five picks in the draft. Um, they were just going back and forth shooting. Um, and uh, this guy, Moretti, from Italy, who plays on Texas Tech's team, um, he had these two threes, and they go up 66-60. Uh, and and they play. I mean, it, it's an interesting team. Texas Tech last year lost uh, from they were made the Elite Eight, but then they lost four of their top players. Mm-hmm. And so people thought they're going to be bad this year. And they came back and they were a hundred to one to win the really hundred to one. You could have bought a ticket for one dollar to win high good odds. And now they're in the Final Four. Um, but it was the interesting part at the end of the game was um, when they uh, th- was when Hachimura was taking a shot and Owens blocked the shot. Was able to get the ball and then keep it and and keep it and keep it for uh, Texas Tech, which is an amazing play. I think the announcer, I, I think it was uh, Reggie Miller, said it was the play of the tournament. Which I don't know if it was a play of the tournament, but it was a great <laughs> defensive play. But then the, and then Gonzaga. What's so funny is that they're so professional. They've been in all these games, and then when they had a chance, they're down two, and Perkins went and tried to reach actually cross the line and knock the ball and knock the ball, which is a technical foul with like ten seconds to go. Which that was the end of the game. So it was. Uh, just amazing. I mean, the one thing I would say about Chris Beard, just he, the guy is coached, coached everywhere. Incarnate Word, Abilene Christian, North Texas, South Carolina Warriors of the ABA. Then he worked at Texas Tech as an assistant under Bobby Knight. And he was supposed to coach UNLV, didn't go to UNLV, took it for like two weeks, and then Texas Tech hired him back. And the first year he was okay, 18-14. 27-10 last year, 30-60 late, late this year. Um, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he likes Texas Tech. Yeah, but um, he is now, people are viewing him as... I just he can find everyone is a great coach. He's like one of the things that can recruit well because Culver was recruited by everybody and he stayed at Texas Tech. So he can not only recruit well, but he brings like people like Moretti from Italy and gets other graduate transfers. And he's going to be this next great coach. He's only 46 years old. So we're well, interesting to see what Texas Tech does in this tournament and going forward in years to come. Ira, you know, we talk about uh, how I have allegiance to the University of Tennessee on this show. Um <laughs> I thought their luck was going to run out before it even did versus Purdue, but then they actually played a pretty good game, just couldn't hold on in OT. Um, Yeah, I mean, Purdue was... uh, This was a weird game because they were down. 
and Purdue, you know, for that Purdue was up 40 to 28. And Schofield, who was terrible in the last game, um, again, the first half against the first half against Iowa, um, was able to come, was able to come back. And, uh, he was 0 for 4 in the field. He scored no points. He went like almost a half, a whole game of basketball of not scoring. And by the, in the second half, Purdue was up by 18 points, but Tennessee cut them back. It was just a great run. And this Ryan Klein, who really was like an eight point, nine point game score, he ended up having 24 points in the second half, just draining mm-hmm. large threes. I mean, it was, such an exciting game at the end in terms of trading the threes and Grant Williams and it was had some big uh, big plays and uh, uh, but Purdue Carson Edwards just another tremendous game I mean you saw the game that he had against Virginia but this game was tremendous he had a 42 point game um, he drove coast to coast but Williams blocked it and then and and it was just it was just a very exciting game and they and Purdue was able to uh, pull it out in overtime. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies channel. It's 724, just about 20 minutes. Andrew Catalan, CBS Sports, play-by-play guy. is going to pop in, talk a little bit of Masters, which is going to be exciting. Also talk about uh, the NCAA tournament. Maybe get his uh, opinion on Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's now our quarterback here in South Florida. Um, Oregon and Virginia, I... I want to go back to, to, to Purdue okay. to say one thing happened in the game. When it was 82 80 um, Carson Edwards went and and took a there was a the ball was knocked out of bounds and this is what I don't like when they have to keep doing this review so mm. t- in the old school of basketball which means like five years ago four <laughs> years ago you just kept playing and you have time to set a play but they spent like five minutes to say who had the ball who didn't have the ball Purdue had the ball and there was only like a couple seconds left in the clock but that gave Purdue time to set up that call and that's why he was then fouled on the inbounds play he missed one free throw made two sent it to overtime but is that it was like weird that that was like that. It, I, I see at the end of the game, there's the flow is like you're out of timeouts. You don't have any more timeouts, but because of you have to pour the whole video replay, and you see in football when they're having to do all the, inter- the, the reviews, it gives teams Everyone gets time. Rested too. It gives teams to rest and also set up plays, and it's an advantage for the team with the ball because they can set up something and do something with it. Absolutely. But in the Oregon Virginia game, uh, you know Virginia they finally started playing a little bit better, but it wasn't it wasn't that great. They're a still game. they're still underwhelming for a one seed. They were very underwhelming. They, they again they they had one. Um, it was just there. There's a season low for Virginia. They scored 53 points. It was a season low for the, for for scoring. I mean, Guy Hunter, Jerome, and Clark all had like 10, 11, 12 points. Um, Oregon, they were out of the. It was like one of those games where I thought it was pretty boring. I thought that I just didn't think they were challenged enough. But uh, but Virginia now is like you know we're getting through it. They're winning games. They're not losing to to mm-hmm. 16 seeds and going through there. But then that set up that great Virginia Purdue game. Yeah. So tell us about this one because this was one of the best games I saw the whole tournament. I got to see. I was down in D.C. and I went to this bar called Millie's and they had a big screen outside. So it was cool watching on like a 200 foot screen mm-hmm. like on a video outside. It was pretty neat to watch it. Carson Edwards, one of the classic games of all times for Purdue, 14. For 25, 10 for 19 from three point line, 42 points. Um, it was absolutely just a tremendous game. UVA was up by six with six minutes to go. Carson Edwards hit a three pointers, and then he they were they then he hit a two pointer, and it was like it was just back to cut it within. And then he hit a three with a minute to go. He banked in a three, so one of his last tens. So they go up 69, 67, and uh, and then Virginia missed a three pointer, and they turned the ball over. But then. Purdue Edwards missed a shot and then they and then they're coming down so now um, Virginia is down to 69 67 five seconds to go and you always say foul don't let them hit a three mm. so they did the right thing I agree with this strategy but they fouled uh, a guy and so he and he makes the first one and he misses the second shot so now it's 69 68 and or, I mean 69 oh, he, he he misses it and they were able to go and they were able to go back and miss they missed the foul shot and it went back to the uh 
uh, it went, he made the first, they were down three, I'm sorry, and they, they missed it. And he, uh, and they got knocked down to the, to the foul line, threw the ball the whole way up the court to, uh, and made a, like a, probably a foul line extended jump shot to send it into overtime. But that was, that was the buzzer beater shot of the yeah. tournament. And it was very exciting to watch. It's super exciting. Uh, keep going. Cause like I said, this game I thought was the best one. Yeah. And then in overtime, it was like, Edwards was still, I mean, to watch a guy like Edwards, who's a, a, a point guard who can score, didn't really pass the ball at all, but just make shot after shot, and everybody knew he was going to have the ball. It was like he deserved to win that game, but it was just, it was tremendous. But in the, in the, in the last, they had a last chance to win the game, and they threw it to Edwards. Edwards brings the ball up, and the play was, they was like five, six seconds to go. They call, they don't inbounds. You can't advance in college basketball. You have to call a timeout, bring the ball up. So mm-hmm. they brought the ball up, called another timeout. So the play was he was going to throw the ball to some to Klein, then throw it back to him, but his pass to Klein was a bad pass, and then the game was over, and Virginia ended up winning. I mean, guy shot eight for 19, five for 12 from threes, 25 points. Um, it was just an amazing game, and, the, and Klein for uh, Purdue had a bad game. He only scored seven points when he scored so many than the day before, but it was a very exciting game to see how Edwards played, and Virginia, this is how Virginia's going to win the tournament, is that they have their starters. They really only have five guys that play, or six guys who play, but they have, uh, they've all, they've, they're senior leadership, junior leadership. They've been there before. They played big games. They know how to make the big shots in the big games, the big plays. And that's why I think they might be the favorite to win at the end. I, I'm debating it. I think I would take Michigan State. I don't, I don't know why. And obviously, that's probably going to change over the course of uh, the next few days. But I don't know just how I'm feeling right now. You know who? Uh, the hardest path to get here has to be Auburn, going through Kentucky, Kansas, and North Carolina. Let's talk about that first game in the Midwest bracket, though. They beat up on North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, I was at the game, so I was watching it. It was neat. They were showing the highlights of the game while you're at the game. And US, I liked UNC a lot. And Auburn, I knew it was going to be a high-scoring game. I thought it was going to be like 100-100. And UNC only got 80 points. Auburn yeah, just was right able to hand. outplay them. Um, and Auburn is just playing with that spreaknet speed. And UNC finally met a team they couldn't outrun. And that was just... I was shocked. I mean, Kobe White. I think a lot of people were shocked. Kobe White was four for 15, 0 for 7 from the three point line, and that really hurt them. Um, there was a, in, a lot of the people, uh, Cam Johnson and Usher Little had the flu for UNC. That could be one of the reasons why they didn't play so well, but a huge win for Auburn. Um, they, they they ended up beating Kentucky and, and UNC and Kansas to get to the, yeah. the final four. No, yeah, nobody had a tougher run than this so far. Um, next game was Kentucky versus Houston. I think Houston was the, uh, the team everyone wanted to see kind of uh, be the darling here. Right. Well, PJ Washington came back from Kentucky um, he scored 16 points he's been he's been hurt the first two rounds of the tournament um, and it was a very it was a close game again I'm trying to watch it on my phone while the game's <laughs> on and they're showing it in, in the arena but a good win from for Kentucky and uh, 62 58 and that set up Auburn Kentucky in that in the final game which was again that was hard because you're at the arena so I'm watching I'm not, literally everybody was watching like I'm watching the Duke warm up and then you're watching the end of that game uh, and Again, Bryce Brown came up big and Jared Harper, the two guards for Auburn. So if you really like guards and shooting, I mean, that's what Auburn was able to do. They, uh, Brown had uh, 24 points. Harper had 26 points. Um, Kentucky didn't shoot well from threes. They, they yeah. haven't really shot well the whole tournament, and they were 5 for 21. And, uh, and then Auburn ends up winning that. You know, you were definitely right, though, in your analysis from, from the first two rounds. It's, some of these teams are just going gonna to live and die by the three. And if they're not falling, your team's going to go home. And like you said, you got to be able to make that adjustment inside. And it's, Ira, it seemed like some of these teams refused to even try to go inside. Also, in that game, and the North Carolina game, what I saw from that is, and they do this all, it's like, they had two-point shots. They really did. They could just, on fast breaks, this pull-up three-point shots, 
I think unless you're draining them, I don't know if it's a great play. If you're like North Carolina, you have big guys that can run the floor well. Just get the dunk. Get the get the exciting dunk. Stop pulling up. I mean, they had three and one fast breaks and they're pulling up now. Like when you're at Golden State and you have Steph Curry and you have Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson, you can pull up and shoot threes. Or you're Houston, you have James Harden. Yeah, pull up and shoot threes. But these other guys, nobody shoots. <laughs> these are elite shooters. I, I just think people that are shooting like 20, 25 percent threes, get the dunk. Don't shoot the three on a pull up. Absolutely, you're right. Let's move on here. Iron Sports about 15 minutes away from Andrew Catalan. Joining us here on the True Oldies channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, um, probably one of the most um, sentimental basketball games you'll ever go to. You were there. It's Chris Bosh's retirement when the Heat played the Magic. Well, I, I think people have to realize, I mean, Chris, this game was crucial for the Heat to win because they're, they're battling the Magic them, yeah. for, the final, for the final spot. There's only six games left. So it was crucial for the Heat. But it also, the Chris Bosh... Um, he he only played seven. He played six seven years here in Miami, but he's well loved. I mean, he is very popular. Uh, I I was I heard the national media after the game was like, oh, why'd you retire his jersey? He only played like a, a cup of coffee here, but he won two titles for the for the Heat. I think he was extremely popular with the fans. Um, a great guy all around. I mean, he's from Texas, went to Wake Forest, seven years at Toronto, five time All Star. He was a second team All NBA player. And he was all-time leader in Toronto in rebounds, blocks, minutes. And then he joins LeBron and Wade. So here's a guy who's the leading point, averaging 20 points, 10 rebounds, and says, I'm going to be at the third wheel on this team. And he changed his game. Yeah. He became a defensive player. He was shooting threes. And he averaged 18 points and seven rebounds and just did all the little dirty work, see things that you needed to do uh, for the Heat. And then... After LeBron leaves, they win two titles in four years. He signs the five-year, $144 million contract. And in the first year, he's starting average 22 points, uh, 23 points. And they found out he hurt his calf and he had a blood clot. And they're like, okay, well, you're okay. You could just come back the next year. He came back the next year. And then now the blood clots were more serious. Mm-hmm. And then he had to, re- and, and he, he never played another game after in Feb- if he ended up that February game was his last game. And it was just a horrendous ending to a career. I mean, he's a very young player and uh, to not have that. But he's popular. He's well-liked. Um, and I, he was crucial. He's going to be a Hall of Fame basketball player. And I just thought it was, um, it was just, it was just an amazing game in terms of of what you had with the and the, with the playoff atmosphere. Um, you walked in the stadium. There were Bosch t- um, uh, t-shirts on everybody's seat. And I've been to many games. I've never seen a game stop for 35 minutes at halftime. Like the Magic didn't complain because I think the respect for Bosch. But they literally brought chairs and tables out. And Mickey Aronson uh, gave a speech. Uh, the owner of the of the Heat, uh, Pat Riley, gave a tremendous speech uh, talking about uh, about the and he talked about the rebound in the San Antonio. Spurs game when they won the title when the ball came out to to when LeBron missed the three they're down three mm-hmm. and and Bosch, Allen, right? Bosch gets the offensive rebound with no time left throws it to Allen Allen drains the three they win game six in overtime and they win game seven that was their uh, and without that they would have won yeah. only that was their that was their only that would have, they would probably only one title so he said it, so Riley called it the most important rebound and assist in Heat history and uh, and then t- t- Dwayne Wade came out and Dwayne Wade gave a tremendous speech and like just said what a great teammate he was and how this and that it was just and then they raised his banner. And his banner raised up. And by that time, all the Heat players came out and they were all sitting there in chairs. And, and it was just, and everyone was crying in the stands. And then Bosch had an interesting speech. He gave, like, I have to say a 15, 16 minute speech when he said, he goes, My grandfather grew up in Jim Crow, uh, Texas. And he ended up owning his own business, owning land. And he said, Your name is the most important thing. Your name is the most important thing. When I was younger, I said, I'm going to have my name. 
up in a stadium somewhere. Mm-hmm. And now I have it. And he was like, I mean, it was like how he said it, how he talked. It was just tremendous. He talked about rebounding, how that rebound was important because it showed hard work. And then he started speaking Spanish to people, everybody like that. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was just a very emotional. They had the band, they had the trophies. They literally brought the trophies out on the court. Um, it was very moving. And the heat at that time was up nine points. They came out after this great ceremony, 35 minutes is huge, but they came up and it was, they're only up two. <laughs> and, yep. the, and, and the Magic outplayed them in the second half and ended up winning the game. I mean, it was just a disaster game for the Heat. Olenek, one for seven, four points. Um, James Johnson, 0 oh for four. Drogic, one for six. They were 217 combined. Um, Whiteside's making 27 million. Anderson, 21. Johnson, 15. Olenek, 13 million. Um, they were just, it's a, it was a complete disaster. Now, Drogic has a $19 million contract next year, and he's probably going to exercise that option. So next year, the Heat are also going to be overwhelmed. I mean, it was exciting that Wade was there in the game. I thought Wade played great. I mean, he played almost the entire fourth quarter, had 22 points, seven rebounds, seven assists, did everything. But it's like almost the Heat are trying to keep everybody happy. Waders was hot, yeah. but then they put him on the bench and sat. Um, and it was just a bad loss. And you look at the Magic roster, and they're not. They're just Aaron Gordon, Jonathan Isaac, Vukovic. Uh, they're just not that good a team. They should not be competing with the Heat for this final spot. Um, but then, but it was it was a terrible loss. Thursday, the Pistons beat the Magic and the Heat beat the Mavericks, which was an interesting game because Dirk Nowitzki came back, and it was the final game between Wade and Dirk Nowitzki. Of course, in 2007, Wade beat Dirk for the first finals for the Heat, and then 2011, Dirk beat LeBron, Wade, and Bosh, and probably one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen some from anyone. And uh, but that was a great win, and also Luka Doncic for the Magic and for the Heat. I'm sorry, Luka Doncic for the Mavericks <laughs> and Goran Dragic for the the Heat are both Slovenians. Yeah. You so you had the two at the old time younger Slovenians yeah. out there playing and that was exciting. And then well the Heat ended up winning on Saturday, but it sets up for the playoff picture now. The Pistons are 17 and a half back. They have the sixth spot. Um, the Nets have the, the, the 18 back, and the Heat are 18 and a half, and Magic are 19. So really, with um, with um, six games left, the Heat can actually be out of the playoffs or even be at the sixth seed. It's so crazy. it's going to be really crazy to what happens in the final. I mean, Milwaukee, Toronto, Philadelphia, Boston uh, are probably one, two, three, four. Indiana's the fifth. But this final spot is only there's um, five teams, uh, four teams competing for three spots. Who would you prefer to play if you're the uh, if you do have that choice between Milwaukee, Toronto, Philly? You go with Philly, so you, you'd want that six? Um, I almost want Milwaukee. I really? think Milwaukee with Brogdon being hurt. I know Milwaukee's blown out the heat a bunch of times, but I think I just think, I mean, all these teams, when you look at the East, besides Kyrie Irving, no one's even played in the championship. Like these t- players, I mean, besides Dwayne Wade, of course, with the Heat. But I mean, most of the top seeds of Milwaukee, well, Toronto, Kawhi Philly, too. Uh, uh, and, and Kawhi yeah. for Toronto, right? So Ka- Kawhi and Kyrie are the only two mm-hmm. that have played. Um, Milwaukee, nobody in Milwaukee has ever sniffed the playoffs or whatever. Yeah, literally a game. <laughs> right, and, and they haven't played with these teams because LeBron owned the East for so long. Mm. So it's really weird to see exactly what's going to happen. And I do think that the Heat, look, if the Heat just get in the playoffs, let's pull an upset, figure something like that out. Uh, what about the West here, I? Well, it's 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 all said, but it's interesting that Golden State in one, Denver two, the Rockets are three, Portland's four. But then Utah Clippers, San Antonio, Oklahoma City are with a couple games apart. It looks like Utah and the Clippers surprisingly could be the fifth and sixth seed, and San Antonio, Oklahoma City could be the seventh and eighth seed if it ended right now, which would be amazing. You should have Golden State play Oklahoma City in the first round, which I don't think Golden State <laughs> wants to have. Of happen. course they don't. No, because they have Paul, Russell Westbrook and Paul George. So it's interesting to see the the parity in in the West in terms of what could happen. But um, and I think San Antonio could beat up on Denver. You know exactly. I think Denver's the weakest two yeah. seed I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, 
Um, but it'll be really interesting to see that going up for the following week. Miami's at Boston tonight. Then they play Boston at home Wednesday. We have that game. They're at Minnesota. They're at Toronto. They play Philly at home. Could be Dwayne Wade's last game if they don't play and make the playoffs. And they're at Brooklyn. It's a really tough schedule. They only have two home games left, four away. So we're going to see what happens. But it's going to be... Look, it's at least the heater making this exciting for the final two weeks of the NBA season. <laughs> exciting and stressful for the fans here, here in South Florida. Ira, speaking of South Florida, you took out a lot of tennis uh, over the past couple of days. Why don't you tell us about uh, how you enjoyed it? Well, I didn't enjoy it on Monday because the seats really high uh, in that stadium were bad. It was hard to, it was just very Nobody hard. Nobody had any it. idea what to expect, though. Nobody had <laughs> It's the weirdest stadium. It's like on one side of the stadium, the seats go the other way. Like if you were in a football stadium and suddenly. It's, it's, it's totally uneven. The seats are in a football stadium, which are not, don't have high elevation, so you're way far back. You watch on TV, people on the upper decks are like a mile away from the stadium. Mm-hmm. But on, so one quarter of the stadium, three quarters of the stadium looks this, like a normal tennis stadium, and one quarter looks like the football stadium, which is weird. And, yeah. and I think caused some problems why a lot of these favorites, you know, upsets throughout the entire tournament. But I did get to see Federer um, uh, win against Medvedev. It's a... It is so exciting to see Roger Federer. He's 37 years old. He won his 101st title. Uh, Jimmy Connors has a record of 108. He really was not tested the entire tournament. And the game against Medvedev, uh, the match, was indicative of what he's able to do, which is he just is to, he has all, I said, the toolbox that he has of the strokes that he can do but also the ability to understand and just think. And he thinks and he knows exactly where the serves are going to go, knows where to stand. He's like the shift in baseball where you're like, how do they know? <laughs> but he doesn't have any computers or whatever making these decisions. And uh, I mean, the, the first match, like these players come out against Federer and they're like, they're like amazing. They're hitting great shots. You're like, he's going to lose this match. And he just figures out how to win at 6-4, 6-2. And he wins in an hour. Um, and it's just great. And then I got to see Isner play against Agut. And Isner's a very funny player because he just, he wins his serve, serves 140 miles an hour. But on his on when he's when he's returning, he doesn't win any points. Doesn't really play well. But they get to a tiebreaker, and a tiebreaker you you alternate points. He's able to just hit the ball out and win that one point. He holds his points that he has to have, mm-hmm. and he wins the tiebreaker. So in the tournament, he had eight match eight sets in four matches. Seven with the tiebreaker, and he won all seven. Um, but in the finals, Isner played Federer, and Federer said, "You know what." John, you serve first. I mean, he won the toss. He goes, you serve first, which is surprising. But he broke Isner in the first serve, broke him in the second, because he knew exactly where Isner was going to serve. I mean, Isner was shell-shocked. Isner throws like 135 mile per hour serve, and Federer was just there hitting the ball. Other people just aces on him, but Federer just knew how to play, and he won 6-4, 6-1. It wasn't even close. Um, but it was... It was interesting. The Americans, of course, I talked about last week, did terrible. TFO made it to the quarters, um, but he lost to Shapovalov. Uh, but it was still a good match, a good tournament for him. He won three matches. But for American men, uh, Query, Fritz, Sangren, Konkula, they all lost in the first round. And the women's was Not even, our best showing. Yeah. The women's, uh, Venus was the only one to make the quarters, and she lost. Uh, they started the tournament with 15 women, and they don't even get, they get, they get nobody in the semifinals of the tournament that they should be a favorite in because it's on, on hard courts. Um, yeah. And you had said that you know after these couple of tournaments, they're heading across across the pond. It's so. all clay now for yeah. the French Open. So where the where the European players have the strength to play, uh, but. I think having Federer, Djokovic lost early in the tournament. Uh, that was bad. Nadal did play in the tournament. The weather was a mess. The raining, I mean, again, the rain, but you can't predict what rain's going to be. Um, the outside of the tournament was great. Uh, they had a lot of restaurants. It seemed like everybody was, when I went outside, everybody was hanging out outside, not watching the tennis. Um, but 
I hope next year they're definitely going to have it back there next year. They just got to fix this. One hundred percent going to be there. One hundred percent. They got to fix the. They got to fix the stadium. They got to make the seats better. They got to bring. I just think it was just. It was very difficult. Maybe like half the stadium is not shaded. Half is. It's weird. Maybe maybe extend some of the shading over. But there's got to be ways to make the stadium better. Uh, I sat in the hundred levels. They were great. I mean, if you have like the perfect seats, they have these chaise lounges that you sit there on the first rows. You saw around. The, they have Wi-Fi where you can charge your phones and look at TV and do everything you want. They're amazing seats. Um, but as I said, the other seats weren't that great. It's, it's just, it was a very temporary venue. You felt like you were at like a high school football game to some extent. Um, but the club sections were nice. They used the same club sections that the football games do. So there's positives, negatives. It's neat that it's easy to park the car and get there. You don't have to go keep a skate and go across the Rickon off the bridge. But um, I, I'm still waiting for the attendance figures. But I think it was definitely hurt because of the rain, because Nadal was out, because Djokovic was out, but it was helped because Federer. But the days that Federer played, it wasn't packed. Mm -hmm. I mean, Federer, I saw two matches and it was maybe like 60, 70% filled. So that's when Federer's playing. When he's not playing, you saw on TV, it seemed like it was 10, 20% filled. It, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about. You're right, though. Maybe if um, you know the other two, two of the big three were there, a little bit better turnout. But either way, uh, it's still it's still a win for Miami having this so close. Just about a minute away from Andrew Catalan here on uh, Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. Tell us about the women real quick. Um, well, Ashley Barty uh, was an unseated uh, uh, player, and she ended up winning winning the tournament over Karolina Pliskova, who it's interesting for Pliskova because she was she was injured and someone broke into her house to rob her house, what? and she. Beat wow. the beat the robber up, but in beating the <laughs> robber up, she hurt her tennis hand and she was out of tennis. I and mean, there was think questions whether she's going to come back. And it's great that she's now really made almost a full recovery. And she lost in the finals, but it was like one of those stories that you hear like this could be like the end of her career. Like, um, but she actually made it to the finals. Uh, but it was. I mean, without Venus, without Venus and Serena in the finals, it's without Americans in the finals. It, they they had very low attendance. It's time to bring in Andrew Catalan, CBS Sports play-by-play -play announcer, one of the busiest guys in the world at the moment with all he's got going on. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Good talking with you again. Ira, what do you got for Andrew? Andrew, so you're you just finished the NCAA basketball tournament. You're now looking to do the Masters, and you also do football. So we have some interesting football questions to ask you. So let's just start here with basketball. Um, I know you broadcast the Auburn, uh, the, the Salt Lake City region where Auburn was in, um, and you did two of their games. So could you tell us a little about for anyone who hasn't really watched Auburn basketball a lot this year. Um, tell us a little about Auburn's team and maybe their chances to to win the title this year. Yeah, well, it's obviously been an incredible run. And to think back to the first round uh, 10 days ago, they nearly lost. If you remember, New Mexico State, the 12 seed, that was a game that I did out in Salt Lake City, had a shot at the buzzer to beat them. Uh, it was an air ball from the corner, and Auburn won by one. And since then, they haven't looked back. Obviously, the loss of Chuma Okiki is a huge loss for Auburn. I mean, he's a tremendous player, even more so on the defensive end. But they were able to find a way to get it done. I mean, that was a very impressive win over over uh, Kentucky to advance to the Final Four. Uh, obviously, if you saw any of that game, they, they are running up and down the floor. They're all about tempo. They shoot and make a ton of three-pointers. And they've got a certain toughness about them. And I think that them beating Okiki, uh, beating Kentucky without Okiki proved to me that they could win the whole thing. Now, obviously, Virginia waits in the wings, and that's a tremendous matchup coming up in the Final Four. But it's been a hell of a run for Auburn. This is the furthest they've ever been, first Final Four. And uh, I would not be surprised if they found a way to win two more games and take the title. 
Um, Bruce Pearl's their coach, and he's full of energy, full of excitement. You remember when he was at Tennessee, he would sit in the student section for the women's game and paint his chest uh, or, uh, <laughs> orange and uh, orange, <laughs> orange and white. Um, and tell us about the the enthusiasm Pearl puts into this team. I mean, it seems like the players will like run through a wall for him. It was funny. So we were out in Salt Lake City, and there's a little bit of elevation there. So most of the teams, especially those coming from flat areas, they had oxygen on the bench. And Bruce Pearl joked that the oxygen is not for the team, it's for him, because you've <laughs> seen him on the sideline jumping up and down and sweating through his shirt. And, uh, look, he's got a tremendous amount of passion for the game of basketball. I really think he loves his kids. It's a, it's a really good group. Uh, it's a mix. It's not just veteran guys. There's some young guys in that fold, too. And I think that any time you have that dynamic where it's not all seniors or all upperclassmen, you really got a, you know, a fine line of trying to work them in uh, and balance all that. I think he's done a great job of that. Um, and I think he's an excellent coach. I mean, X's and O's wise, I think he's right up there. So it's been a kind of a resurrection for him after uh, the way he left Tennessee. Then he went into TV for a little while, and now he's got Auburn in the Final Four. It's quite a journey. So, I mean, the, the, the topic of conversation today, I was at the game, is the Duke-Michigan State game, and I think a lot of people are like, what went wrong? I mean, I think that's the, it's not, I mean, they're giving credit for Michigan State for winning the game, but a lot of it is now put on to Coach K and the Duke team and, and how three of the top five players in the draft were unable to, to not only not win the national championship, but even get to the Final Four. And, and what's, your, what's your feeling about this Duke season and this Duke team and, and, and about, I guess, what went wrong? Well, you know, I know you've got a, a Duke allegiance there, and I <laughs> certainly respect that. And if I had to pick one team before the tournament started, I would have picked Duke, like I think many other people. But I was not in that group that thought it was going to be a cakewalk. I didn't think that they were an unbeatable team. Um, even in the ACC tournament, uh, Syracuse, my alma mater, gave them a fight without their best player. Tyus Battle didn't play in the quarterfinals, and that game was tied with 10 minutes to go. And watching that game closely, it made me think that this Duke team is not unbeatable. And when you have freshmen, um, they are prone to make mistakes. They are playing in high-pressure situations. Um, so, you know, did, did Zion not, you know, pick up the screen on that Goins three-pointer? I mean, some people are saying that today. So, you know, I think that you have to remember when you have a young team, look at Kentucky. I mean, they're, they're a bunch of one-and-done guys as well, and they couldn't find a way to the Final Four. Now for a couple of years in a row now for John Calipari. So uh, I think it's sure if I had to pick one team, it was Duke, but I'm not shocked that they're not in the Final Four. I, you know, and I, I thought there was all that up, uproar. How could Michigan State be the two-seed in their bracket? Well, you know, we had to, we had to get there first. We did. And Michigan State's an excellent team. So, look, I think it was a great season. I loved watching Zion. I think it was great for college basketball. Um, I don't know if I'd say what went wrong as to tip my cap and say they got beat by a really good Michigan State team. That's just my point of view on it. So, in terms of Michigan State, I mean, this is like one of those years where um, – I, it's like they're they were it was it was they winning the Big Ten losing the Big Ten tournament it was just it was just weird like they you thought that they had some bad losses losing to Penn State this year um, but where do you think like what do you like about this Michigan State team really in terms of and what do they need to do to, to win the title? Well, look, I mean, you can have a great season and then you know cool off in March and and you're not there at the end. I mean, whoever gets hot at the right time, they had a great run in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, and they've kind of ridden that momentum. They've got an excellent coach in Tom Izzo. 
uh, and they rose to the moment. So, look, if you're if you're in the Final Four, you obviously got a chance to win it all. I mean, there's four very different but incredible stories, and these are four excellent teams. I mean, I wouldn't even count out Texas Tech, even though I'm sure that most people think they're the, the fourth of four to potentially win a title. I mean, they had to go through a Gonzaga team that I thought was going to win the national title. So everyone at this stage is good. I mean, to me, Michigan State and Virginia are probably the two favorites to meet in the title game, and who knows what would happen in that. But these teams are – I mean, Auburn hasn't – they won four games in four days at the SEC tournament and have not lost since. So it's, what is it, like 12, 13 games in a row they've won now. Michigan State's in that similar boat where they've – pretty much won out in March. So, you know, I think that when you find that rhythm this time of year, you know, you can look back. UConn won the Big East tournament and didn't look back. I mean, those types of stories seem to happen where you get hot and you don't ever cool off until you got the trophy in your hand. Well, it's going to be interesting with Auburn and, 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 and Virginia, the, 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 the pedal to the metal team and more of the slowdown type team and, and like how that game is just going to develop. I think it's going to be just intriguing to see uh, the mat. It's just an interesting matchup because I mean, when Auburn played North Carolina, you knew, look, the first one to 100 is probably going to win the game or 105 or 110. But in this game, you still don't know if, is Virginia going to play out of, is, is, it, is the pace of the game going to force Virginia to take bad shots and try to run when they really aren't that type of team? And is Auburn going to control the pace or is Virginia going to control the pace in that game? I think whoever answers that question is going to win the game. I mean, Auburn, when they're at their best, is playing helter-skelter. They're running up and down the floor. They're gunning up three-pointers. That's the way that they succeed. They can't slow it down like Virginia. So if Auburn plays at Virginia's pace, it's not going to go well for the Tigers. Again, I really worry about the, the Okiki injury for Auburn and how that plays in this game. They were able to overcome it, obviously, yesterday. Can they do it again? But if Virginia plays at their pace, I mean, they're tough to beat. So whoever controls the pace in that game, you're absolutely right. It's going to win that and go to the national championship. And then in the Texas Tech-Michigan State game, I mean, I'm shocked how Texas Tech played against Michigan. I was just so blown away about the defense, and, and I, I, just, I just don't know. Like I'm watching, When I'm watching Michigan State, I'm thinking, can Texas Tech do that same? Can they shut? Is Michigan State, is Izzo going to come up with an offensive plan that is going to, to, to break the number one defense in the country and, and force Culver to take some bad shots and, and put pressure on Texas Tech to score? Um, I just don't know. I mean, what's your opinion in terms of Michigan State's ability to score versus Texas Tech's ability to stop them from scoring? Yeah, well, you know, I think that a lot of people will look at the coaching matchup and be like, well, Tom Izzo is going to run circles around Beard. But I, I'm here to tell you that Beard is a phenomenal coach. Um, I saw him in the tournament a few years ago when he was at Little Rock, and then he's parlayed that into this job at Texas Tech. And X's and O's wise, he's as good as anyone in the country. So uh, I think that's one matchup we can throw out the window. It's not going to be Tom Izzo out coaching the opponent like it is so many times for Michigan State and Tom Izzo. Uh, I think Texas Tech is a hungry team. Not that Michigan State's not, but to, but to go on this run that they're on, uh, to beat Gonzaga, which to me, not only can they score 85 points a game, but they'll shut you down. And Texas Tech was able to get 75 points on them in the Elite Eight and get there. Again, I'm sure that most people consider Texas Tech the fourth of four teams to win the title right now, but I certainly would not count them out against Michigan State. We're talking to CBS Sports broadcaster Andrew Catalan on Iron Sports on 95.9, 106.9. Um, Andrew, just one final question: Like, who, who do, you, where do you think? Who do you think is going? If you now have to reset your bracket and you have the four teams, which team is mm-hmm. going to come out on top? You think? 
You know, I guess if I had to pick one right now, it would be Virginia. I just think that they have that chip on their shoulder from last year that they've seemed to have carried with them all this all this way. I think that they'll find a way to beat Auburn, as I mentioned, without Okiki. I think it'll be Michigan State in the championship game. I think that would be a phenomenal game. I think that Michigan State-Virginia would be an excellent championship game a week from tonight uh, in Minneapolis. So if I had to pick one now, it would be Virginia. I was on the Gonzaga bandwagon the entire way from – really the start of the tournament until they were eliminated. So I'm very surprised that they're not there. I, I had them winning it all this year. Uh, but if I can reset with these final four, I would take Virginia. Okay, Andrew. So we're going to move to golf. I mean, we're going to go from college basketball to golf, but that's what you have to do. I know in two weeks you're going to be in Augusta. A, a lot of people would – I mean, this is that would be awesome to be covering this tournament. And you're doing, I think you told me, the featured groups for DirecTV. So if you have DirecTV and also on the app, I guess you can see that too, the featured group coverage. Um, give us a flavor in terms of the Masters and, and, and your feelings going this year. I mean, I mean, it's so exciting to have Tiger and Phil, the old timers that are still great, playing really good golf. And then you have the Justin Thomases and the Rory's that are also hot too. So just give us a sense of, of you know, your excitement going into the Masters this year. Well, for me personally, it's my favorite week of the year. Um, it's going to be my ninth Masters tournament, as you mentioned, covering the feature group channel. So it's, uh, it's always a blast to get down there. And, and a lot of the early round coverage is really our coverage because it doesn't go on tv until later in the afternoon on thursday and friday so it's always a thrill to kind of kick off our coverage for cbs down there and the thing that i well there's many things i love about it but but when you talk about the players and people going back you know every year it's the same course i mean this year there's a couple holes that are a little bit longer but for the most part everything is the same and that's why i think it gives the tiger woods the phil mickelson's an advantage where you know maybe for a u.s open all right, well, this year it's really not their type of course, or it's more for the longer hitters. Or you know, Augusta, they know the breaks. They know where the putts are going. They know where to miss, which is very important for both of those players, especially Phil Mickelson. So that's what I always like about Augusta is that I, I feel like even some of these guys that, you know, are they going to win again? I'm not sure. Well, this kind of levels the playing field a little bit. So, yes, Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy is playing very well, even though he lost to Tiger in the match play over the weekend. Those are guys that you're going to think are the favorites to win, but I wouldn't count out a guy, obviously, like Tiger or even Phil Mickelson, who hasn't played great so far this year, to, to put it all together because that's, you know, Phil Mickelson talking about Augusta is, is you know, look up his quotes. I mean, he, he glows about it. Uh, it's his favorite place in the world, and that brings out the best in a lot of these guys. So I always think it's a tremendous week of golf, and uh, they obviously do an incredible job putting on the tournament. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go, it's worth it. It's just an unbelievable experience to, to be at Augusta National for the Masters Tournament. Is there a golfer you're looking at this year? I think last year, like, John Rahm was the hot golfer. Like, someone was, like, people saying, this is this is where he's going to have his breakout tournament. Is there a is – there, is, is, even though everybody sort of knows the top golfers now, I mean, they're all sort of winning tournaments, but is there a golfer out there that you feel is playing really well that, that this course might suit their style um, that, that actually could uh, make a, have, be, have a breakout win or at least be in contention on Sunday? Well, I mean, he's not under the radar by any means, but I, I just would caution not to be fooled by Rory losing to Tiger over the weekend. Um, you know, Rory's got some demons at Augusta National for the way it broke down for him a few years ago. He's chasing the career Grand Slam again. He only needs the Masters to complete it. 
And even though he didn't have his A game against Tiger in match play in Austin over the weekend, I just get a feeling that he's really primed to, to get that monkey off his back and win his first green jacket. As you mentioned, there's going to be a ton of talent there, and he's going to have to earn every bit of it. Uh, but I really think that if you look at his year, he's played well. He seems to be peaking or at least trending in the right direction outside of Saturday's performance uh, to where he wants to be for Augusta. And that's what a lot of these golfers do. They, they see Augusta National on the calendar, and they try to make sure they're peaking for that moment, much like the basketball teams we talked about are trying to peak in March. Uh, they want to peak Masters time. So I, I would not count out Rory despite his uh, exit against Tiger in match play over the weekend. Um, Andrew, one and I want to switch to your other sport. I mean, you're so diverse. You just do so many sports. But on football, um, there's two questions. One, first of all, is that I'm getting a lot of when I'm down here in South Florida, a lot of people have the question is who's Ryan Fitzpatrick? And he's now the quarterback of the Dolphins. And I know, you know, from you covering the many doing so many of the he, he's played on eight different teams and uh, and been around the league. So tell us a little about what who is the quarterback now for the Miami Dolphins and who is this Ryan Fitzpatrick person? Well, I think he's a veteran you can trust. Um, I don't think he's going to go out and win you 13 games, but I don't think he's going to lose you 13 games either. I think it's going to be you know somewhere in that 7-8, maybe 9 range. And also you got to see what they do in the draft. Um, are they going to wait till next year when you have those really talented quarterbacks coming out from Alabama and Clemson, or are they gonna, is there somebody in this draft that they like? Because if there is, and that person could could easily be the starter unless they want him to, you know, quote-unquote redshirt a year. But Ryan Fitzpatrick is a guy, you look up his numbers, I mean, he threw for over 400 yards a couple of times last year. He can still sling it. Uh, Again, a guy you can trust. Yeah, he might have a three-interception day here or there, but I think you could feel comfortable going into the season with him as your starter. Uh, But again, let's see what they do with the draft. Do they get tempted to take a rookie right now? And then the one final NFL question is, the new instant replay. I mean, the, we call it, I guess, the New Orleans Saints rule uh, in terms of what they decide to do. The fact that you're going to now be able to review uh, instant view pa- pass interference penalties that are called and not called. And uh, that's going to be, you know, it's def- definitely a change in terms of before it was just, is it a fumble, not a fumble, where the ball is, is it a first down, not a first down. But now actually you're going to review a penalty. Um, what's your feeling about this? And what have you heard uh, about this new rule that's going to be in effect this coming year? Yeah, I'm a little surprised by it, uh, to be honest with you. I think that in an era where we're always trying to worry that there's too many stoppages, games are too long, um, that, you know, I thought that I I didn't think that it would come to that. But obviously the coaches were the ones behind this. I mean, there was only one team, the Cincinnati Bengals, that did not vote for this to go through. So clearly it meant a lot to the coaches. Obviously what happened in the NFC Championship game last year, nobody's happy about and this spurred a change. Now, keep in mind, it's a one-year change. At the end of next year, then they will decide whether it becomes permanent or they go back to the other way. So if, there, if you see games taking three and a half hours or you see this thing you know, that's not working out, they're going to go back to the way it was, but they are going to try it this year. And I'm curious to see you know, how the stoppages, how the – how long the games go and then if that has a significant impact on it or not. 
Well, Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports. You can uh, hear Andrew this or next week on the feature group coverage. Is this something on the Masters Live? Can we on the feature group? Will we be able to see you on that, or is it just on the Direct TV featured group? Is it on the Masters Live on the app, or is it just on Direct yeah. TV? Yeah, most people watch on the app, or you can go to Masters.com or CBSSports.com. But I know that the uh, Masters app is a really popular spot. It looks great. Uh, the picture, I know you watched it. It's it's awesome. So yes, you can find me there as well. Oh, that's great. So I, I'm looking forward to. That because and hopefully you have Tiger in the feature group. Like I hate when sometimes the feature group is like uh, some other. Usually they have really good golfers in that, but that's always the hope is that on that first Thursday that I get Tiger in the morning if he's not going to be on television in the afternoon or something like that. So well, that was our first group last year, Thursday morning, Tiger Woods back at Augusta. That we were the ones that kicked it off. So I have a feeling that um, you'll see him at some point over the weekend on our coverage. So, all right, well, thank you a lot, Andrew, for coming on. I really appreciate you. You've been listening to Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports and a CBS Sports basketball announcer, a football announcer, and golf announcer and doing the Masters in two weeks. Thanks a lot, Andrew. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. He really does run the gamut. Extremely talented uh, to be able to cover all that and you know know what you're talking about. It's each, each sport in and out like that. We've got uh, just maybe like two or three minutes here, Ira. Why don't we... Um, Touch on baseball quickly. Um, my favorite sport. It's underway. And you saw a stadium that I've always wanted to see, Nationals Park. You've got to go to Nationals Park. I know. I, I, I've been to RFK back when, you know, before it was even, you know, before they built the new one. It's weird that I did. I've been to, I think it's my 25th stadium. So I'm getting close to almost all the stadiums. I mean, I think in a couple of years I'll have every baseball, football, and basketball stadium seen, you know, to visit it to. But it was just, it was, it's in the Navy Yard section of the town, which was not that cool area when it was built uh, but in 2008. But now is like one of the hottest areas mm-hmm. where everybody wants to live. And this is really an example of where a stadium came and it's developed everything around it. Like like when we talked about how 45th Street Stadium, there's nothing around it. Yeah. There's now restaurants. I mean, after the game was over, you walked to lots of restaurants. It's a weird stadium, though. It If you look to your left, I sat right behind the uh, first base dugout. It feels like you're in Dodger Stadium, Yankee Stadium. It has that big stadium-type feel. Mm-hmm. But if you look to the right, it feels like in Philadelphia, like in the, in the in Citizen Banks, with the huge scoreboard, and it seems like it's so close. So yeah. it has that mix, and it has That's these cool. seats in the outfield that are like the Fenway Park. It looked it, it almost took the best of a lot of stadiums and put it together. Now, I don't think it's the perfect stadium. The bad part of it, it doesn't have the view that PNC Park has. You're looking at like buildings and structures and they had construction so it's not that view when you look at a stadium like PNC, PNC has. is beautiful and PNC has that beautiful downtown Pittsburgh skyline but I do like the fact that it has a stadium in the backfield unlike City Field so when you walk around I, I hate walking around a stadium and you're fighting and pushing through people all the time it is enough room to walk around you can go from one side to the other and that makes it nice huge con- lots of concessions lots of bathrooms makes it great but it also has that intimate feel when you're in the stadium so that made it pretty cool and their they're fans they're, they average 30,000 a game I was shocked yeah. i mean they've been doing that for like six seven years I and mean, it's not that's a that's a tremendous uh it seats forty one thousand. but i really like the stadium a lot and uh and i just you know can't wait to go to another game there and it's interesting because we have the nationals here uh playing at uh, in, in the 45th fit team yeah. the 15 ballpark so i got to see the nationals play i think like four spring training games and you get to see them now play when the games really count so i saw i went to see strasburg versus synagogue and they both didn't pitch well. They both, as we mm-hmm. talked, they both gave up four runs in six innings and didn't really play well. And uh, the Mets won 11 8. Uh, and a ton of Mets fans at that game. I mean, really? the New York fans, yeah, it was, they were they were all there cheering on the Mets. And the Mets, I mean, that's, we'll talk, we're, next week we're going to do baseball predictions. I really like this Mets team. I think they have some good young players. I, they're going to, they might win. I think they're going to win the East. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that. The only pitcher, the only ace who did have a good start to the season is Jacob DeGrom, who was absolutely lights out. Um, opening day for them. 
I don't know. You know, it's funny. You had mentioned, um, you know, in a text to us, watch out for this guy, Jeff McNeil. And since you said that, he's been like lights out. And he's actually like, if you follow fantasy baseball, he's like the must add for the week. <laughs> Everyone go grab Jeff McNeil, the Mets multi-purpose guy. But I think they're good. And I think it's still too early for Philly. I'm still worried about Atlanta if I'm them. But Atlanta doesn't have the pitching they do. So it should be good. And also the other thing is that as Mar- if Marlins fans, um, boy, that Christian Yellick trade was great. I mean, just yeah. get rid of a player that's popular, that loves being here. And then he trades in Milwaukee and he wins the MVP last year. And then after winning the MVP, he sort of takes the summer off and doesn't get better. But he comes back and he has four home runs in four games. <laughs> so, and he's like, the, I mean, unbelievable. Like, that's not a player you want on your team. I don't yeah. see why. I'm, I'm so glad the Marlins got rid of a player that really you know just doesn't cause any problems is a great teammate as a winner and wins the MVP and then starts the year after winning the MVP with four home runs in four games averaging 162 <laughs> home runs it's, un- it's unbelievable what a trade I mean that the Marlins I just Marcelo I mean, Zuna came out hot too I, I think Stanton got injured but you start Today, as, yeah. as you're looking at some of these players and looking what the Marlins did and, and to think what they could have had and, and, and we're not saying a team that's going to win 110 games like the uh, the Astros and Yankees and the Red Sox but it's competitive team not to field it and, and players that want to be here I just it's still people are going to talk about that in Miami forever yeah no it's it's been a huge debate lately <laughs> poor uh poor uh Miami Miami Marlins front office uh, Ira where are you headed this week um I like to go Wednesday the Heat play the Celtics at home I think that's going to be a huge game for them they play tonight it's weird they're playing a back-to-back but on Monday so they're at Boston tonight it's on right now and uh uh and they're then they're going to play Wednesday and I want to go I love going to Heat games and and it's a must win you know Dwayne Wade this might only be his next to last game that he plays at home and and so it's hopefully they make the playoffs I mean you want to see Dwayne Wade in the playoffs I think everybody wants him in there but uh, Orlando's playing tough and Orlando's not going anywhere and the Miami is inconsistent and it's like they could probably like I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if they won both the Celtics games and they lost both or they lost both the Celtics that'd be classic for their season that's right on pace of what this Miami Heat team does day in and day out we are out of time Andrew Catalan CBS Sports play-by-play guy don't miss him at the Masters and also on your sidelines throughout the NFL season great guest always here on Iron Sports on behalf of Ira I'm Mike let's talk next Monday night it's Iron Sports Sports.